Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and the Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu. Welcome, folks, to the Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. And I'm Dr. Bud Marr. And we are coming to you from a new year. New year, new year, new year. 2024. It is great to be with you. Bud, do the math real quick. How long have we been up to this, up to these shenanigans? Oh, goodness. I think... This year we will experience our eighth year anniversary. Experience maybe maybe our seventh. So you came to Mercy in two thousand sixteen. So tomorrow, uh, yeah. tomorrow? No, uh, I think my first day was January six. Epiphany. But you hit the ground running in Des Moines. I think you knew more people in two months than I knew in like two years. It's- and. So by August 2016, I think we were doing a radio show. That's right. I do admit it was a very quick turnaround uh, when, when people entrusted us to do this. The reason I knew a lot of people already was because Mike Aquilina introduced me to John yeah. Leonetti, and then John Leonetti, well, we all know how that goes. The point <laughs> is, is this has been three-fourths of a decade of the uncommon good, and that's what you're listening to today. We are so grateful here in the new year, restoring all things in Christ as had as a motto of the show. Uh, we're here because of lots of people, their love, their prayers, but also through the sponsorship of Mercy College of Health Sciences, mchs.edu. But we have students getting ready to come back uh, for the spring semester. Hopefully they've had a good break over Christmas and the holidays. But what do you do over at Mercy College of Health Sciences? I think the simplest way to say it is that I'm an academic dean. Mm. The full title involves being the dean of liberal arts and sciences, but I might just start rolling with academic dean. Yeah, mission officer is sort of the umbrella term yeah. I have. Uh, also get to do things like direct Center for Human Flourishing. I should point that out because we do have people coming in this new year. It won't be till April, but we'll have plenty of time to let you know of that. But as I said, Mercy College of Health Sciences, underwriting our show, mchs.edu. Probably a bit too late to start this spring. Mm. Never too late to start thinking about summer or, of course, the next fall. mchs.edu if you want to get a chance to look at what we have as far as offerings go here at school. Yeah, I kind of like the spring semester. I don't know. It's a close race. Fall semester, it's very university-ish. Like you see the leaves changing and everyone's wearing like tweed sweaters and <laughs> Corn ri- bob pipes. like ripping cellophane off of their new textbooks. But the nice thing about spring is it starts out kind of cold and dark. And then as you get closer to the finish line, things are coming to life and you're getting warmer weather. So it's kind of a nice journey because, at, well, it's a dangerous one because as you're tired of class, the weather is also getting much better. That's absolutely true. In fall, as you're sort of you know needing to hunker down, it is getting colder usually. Like and maybe it is, I'll sit by the fireplace and read. That's right. Well, I will say this year, what I always associate with fall, of course, is that means football gets to start up. Yeah. Football is now pretty much done. We have a national championship coming up, of course, in the NFL playoffs. But I have to admit, bud... When bowl season was over, because this was like the first bowl season where my son was more involved in it than I was. Yeah. And so we got to spend a lot of like father son time watching bowl games and pretty much everyone who we wanted to win won, and everyone who we wanted to lose did. So it was pretty great. But man, it really it really affected me this time. But I was like, man, there's there's no more bowl games. And I know like last year, Oklahoma State lost. So maybe that made me a little bit more jaded. But I do think it's like when you get to watch with your teenage kids and it's something you're doing, you really get this sense of, 
you know, sunrise, sunset, because the, the bowl game season is over. Just one more bowl season over with my boy. Yeah, I'm a huge bowl season fan. There are people out there who complain about too many bowls, but Boo. to me, it's the last hurrah. It's like the star burning out before it goes dark. And like, <laughs> I try to, I try to soak it all in. Now, there were some unwatchable bowls this season. I tried to concentrate during Ohio State, Mizzou. Yeah, but it was like, which team is going to not lose more than win? That one I got lucky because we had family activities we were doing, and so I just got to watch the end of it, and that was a lot more exciting than the vast majority of it. So many opt-outs, but I love I love like the off-the-beaten-path bowls and like the Mayo Bowl, showing my kids the uh, players dumping mayonnaise on the coach. Yes, and I mean, of course, we could probably do an entire show about whether what we watched at the Pop-Tarts Bowl was a parody of human sacrifice <laughs> or just interesting marketing, but... Either way, we can leave that uh, for a later episode. There you go. Today we're going to uh, – this plays into it because we, we like to, you know making sure that our first New Year's show is about new beginnings. And I guess you can say, but at this point, like that's to bring things full circle, this is maybe the seventh or eighth time that we've talked about the new beginnings that a new year brings in. But as you pointed out, there's always new things to say, even if it's a common theme. So this is the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Mar. Stick around for our new beginnings. We'll be back right after this. Back with the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Mar joining you this week and this new year. Thank you for listening to the show. It's wonderful to have you with us. Wonderful to be here on Iowa Catholic Radio in 2024. I'm excited about what uh, the year is going to bring in many aspects, bud, but particularly on the radio show. It's wonderful to have all of you with us. So quite appropriate for the first show out of the gate in the new year. We want to talk about new beginnings once again. And I'm struck, of course, by the paradox, bud, that it's an old thing to talk about new beginnings at the beginning of the year. But also because we return to these considerations on a yearly basis, what is, of course, constant becomes more apparent. But really what's, what changes are a new perspective we have on things is allowed by repeatedly listening and thinking and reflecting on them again. That's why we, for instance, have the liturgical readings that we um, hear every year on certain feasts, ever ancient, ever new. It's a solid bedrock, but we always find new things uh, to see and hear in those matters. And so before we started the show, we were talking about this, bud, that we started to really hit on a theme at the end of you know the year, not so many weeks ago, the end of the year 2023. And I think it's this idea about in secular society, we have celebrations that, of course, are the federal holidays or the sort of warp and weft that even in a world where the times and, and, and differences are worn flat, like we're not eating certain foods at certain times of the year because in the past, of course, you could only eat what was available at that time. Sort of our economic juggernaut allows us to do whatever whenever we want. But there's a yearning in the, the deep human sense to have something like a liturgical season, even if it's secular. And I think we want to explore that out of the gate this year, the ever ancient, ever new of secular holidays showing that we want new beginnings, but that maybe how we go about them or approach them uh, without uh, the truth of the faith. It's just not going to do it in the same way, but there's hope in that, hoping that we could stir embers back into the full flame of faith here in the West. Yeah, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but you know, some forms of Christianity are more allergic to liturgical seasons and things because 
in their view, it kind of it doesn't have a sort of spontaneity, and we can just praise all, God. Yes, <laughs> you know, I mean, there are low churches that end up having a real structure to their service, but they they have this kind of like valuing of like, well, you come, you read God's word, and then you have this sort of like spontaneous response to it. The Catholic Church, of course, has given us a great gift in structuring time through the liturgical seasons. That's tough to say. That's a tongue twister. And but what happens is. When those things wane, uh, it's not like they go away. Human beings mark time. And so you see in the culture like this vacuum's created. And when Christians sometimes maybe don't pay attention to it as much or emphasize it as much, the culture finds ways of like Halloween. It sort of like approximates to what Christians have historically tried to do in remembering the dead. Thanksgiving, uh, this, this holiday of gratitude. Christmas, you know, all of a sudden like some language about our Lord and Savior being born is is okay to bring into the mainstream cultural life. With the new year, I think you see this thing happening as well. All of us as humans, we're good at dead ends. And so we kind of, we long for this opportunity to sort of have a clean slate. Now, when the new year rolls around, you know, what you've eaten over the last year, that doesn't go away. And you know, like, yeah, too bad. The mistakes that you've made and things like that, that, that history still exists. And yet all of us we get to that moment, and again, I mean, in a sense, sort of arbitrarily chosen, we could get into a philosophical conversation about how our marking of time maps onto the structure of the universe or something, but January 1st, all of a sudden, we say, like, well, now we have this opportunity to have a new beginning and to have this resolution, and I think there's something to celebrate about that and maybe an opportunity for evangelization because in Scripture, I mean, Scripture is like one long story of human beings find de- finding dead ends and God doing something new and great, going all the way back to Genesis, like with the sin of our first parents, at that very moment, God doesn't say like, well, you messed up, too bad, I'm washing my hands of it, but promises that he'll send the seed of, of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, and that kind of sort of sparks the rest of the narrative of, of the Bible. So, but I think that to make this point even clearer, because like you said, you're, you're pointing out this sort of deep theological and anthropod- anthropological uh, reality that sits right below the surface. And anytime people worry about, well, what are we going to do with this generation? You know, attendance at church is falling. We, we kind of hear these stats again and again. Is the flame of faith going out? What's interesting, of course, is the flame of faith never goes out. It rests in embers, so to speak, right underneath the surface. I want to point out, so you, you, you hinted at this, why January 1st is the new year, especially since you can see sort of the... Uh, the bones, right? If you, if you dig just underneath the surface, clearly January 1st was not always the new year in people's minds, not even in Christian societies. So for instance, March 25th, the Annunciation in some countries is still sort of considered the new year. You see this right in the fact that the last months of the year in our calendar are named, so it starts with September, right? Septa, Octa, Nova, December. So that, that means uh, the eighth, ninth, excuse me, the seventh, eighth, and ninth, and tenth month. So you're like, why is December the tenth month if it's the last one? Well, so then you go January, February. What happens in March? The Annunciation. So why? Where, how did we get to January first being the new year? And I think this goes to show you what we're talking about about how our culture is still running off of fumes provided by Christianity, and those fumes and the human need, I think, can be fanned into a flame. January first was considered the first day of the year because of the circumcision of Jesus. So if you go, why is January 1st the beginning of a new year and a new calendar month? It's because it's eight days after Christmas. And so people seem to not think about this, right? That 
the year when we decided in the Gregorian calendar to count New Year's were like the day Jesus was circumcised and made part of the people of Israel through the liturgical rite um, of the Hebrews. Even things like the 12 days of Christmas, right? Like, why do we have all these songs with all these birds, for instance? Well, that's because that's the day from Christmas, 12 days later, and then you have January 6th. So the 12 days ends January 5th. Shakespeare writes, you know, 12th night, things like this. There are so much in this sort of implicit idea that you should be celebrating, that there's new beginnings, that there should be a lot of revelry, that there should be a lot of things to do right here in the calendar that Christianity has deeply woven even in a disenchanted age like ours. When you have this fact that sort of the archaeology of our calendar, even the secular one, just below the surface still runs on Christianity's fumes, that matches up what you're talking about, Bud, that from the beginning of the world, we've thought, when can we have times to start over? And so deep within this, you know, January 1st and New Year's resolutions and you know, being very happy that when it when the the ball finally falls falls descends drops. drops. Thank you. That we finally get this idea of maybe this year can be different. Those two things. I mean, like you know, what is it? Fire has to take three things. There's the fuel, there's the oxygen, and there's the spark. I think the oxygen and the fuel is there, waiting for a spark. Just what's going to set that off? Yeah, and your comments there, well, they remind me of a Counting Crows song, Long December. Yeah, there you go. I won't sing it on air, but maybe this year will be better than the path, the last. Uh, but it also reminds me of, as Christians, we hold together both the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of salvation. The same God who created us is the one who saves us. And I feel like at this specific moment in human history, that Christianity in its dominant forms sort of... Uh, emphasizes more the doctrine of salvation, sometimes to the detriment of the doctrine of creation. And what I mean by that, and I'm, I am channeling some of St. John Henry Newman here, is that in certain strands of Christian theology, and really, I think even if you pose this idea to someone like Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine, they would affirm it. There's this notion that Christ would have, the Son of God would have become incarnate even if human beings hadn't sinned. Now, the shape of Christ's incarnation in his life, it took the shape that it did because of sin. So perfect love entered a world that was sinful. The fittingness uh, of the response to human sin. To human sin. Yep. And then the incarnate Lord was crucified because he stepped into that sinful reality. But we have to remember that because we affirm that the same God who saves us is the one who created everything, that any new beginning that God brings about, it's not chucking out something. Mm-hmm. So he created everything good and that's foundation. It's, you know, like an ontology of peace that at the beginning of all things, you have this fundamentally good reality and the restoration of all things is taking that reality and restoring it to its proper intention. To keep being history nerd, to like bring up what you're talking about. So I'll bring up 12th night again, the 12 days of Christmas, again, not just a thing to bring up, like, do you have enough birds? Which by the way, evidently there's two camps on that one. Either uh, it's this game that people played where you had to see if you could remember all of them. You know how no one ever remembers past seven? And if you messed up the song, you had to like give some of your treats to someone or something like this. Or it's a hidden catechism for Catholicism that was suppressed in England. Who knows? One of the two. But what's interesting about this, bud, um, Twelfth Night, especially in the northern countries like England and Germany, so this is before the Reformation, um, those were the party times. Oh, yeah. And it's very interesting. They would even, like... Uh, 
they would make someone the Lord of Misrule, um, and they drink a lot. Now, the reason you're going, what does this have to do with creation and salvation coming together? Well, on one hand, it's a celebration of the reality of, like you said, um, the warp and weft of the, the, the seasons of the year. But why do people drink a lot of alcohol throughout history in winter? They were cold. Well, <laughs> not getting enough calories, probably. Right, and it was the only thing that could preserve in winter. No, I mean it was. You yeah, no, can't, I'm, you, you, I'm you, laughing at my first answer. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> "What do I do at tailgates?" They feel, yeah, they felt cold. You don't feel cold anymore after that. <laughs> no, um, so I mean, it's a, a, a fact of biology and agriculture that you had things that could store in root cellars that long, and alcohol, which is. If you can say whatever you want about alcohol, but alcohol as a sort of invention of human culture is a way to provide calories in the middle of winter when you live far enough north that you're not going to be able to get food outside. You know, you can't keep ki- killing cows. You've got to save some of them. <laughs> and so part of the Twelfth Night being the big party time, not only was it's this fact, right, of nature of respecting the warp and weft of the seasons, but then it's also respecting that Jesus Christ came and turned everything upside down. So here's the salvation side, right? That's why they would have like the Lord of Misrule or like the boy bishops you hear in Anglicanism, things like this, where it's the idea of for a while, the world is set on its head because God himself became a baby to come save us. By the way, but that's probably why the Southern Catholic cultures in Europe did Mardi Gras more because they're sort of like running out of stuff and eating, drink alcohol was probably later. Um, so, this goes to show, right, that even in a practical thing, like, why does this thing emerge in a particular culture? Here is where creation and salvation history meet into this, we have a 12-day party because we're celebrating the Lord, and look what we have around. And that's kind of reassuring to me because I think sometimes when we think about our faith and living it out, we think to fulfill the calling God has for us, we have to do something truly amazing. Mm-hmm. And there are there are amazing missionaries. Like, I love reading about St. Patrick. But there were a lot of faithful Christians throughout history where part of it was just like, how do we brew alcohol that will get us through the winter? And all of those processes, alcohol, like bread making, it's sort of like finding root within a place and taking the gifts that are in that place and saying, we're going to build a way of life here that um, has that festivity, like has that communal aspect, but is also glorifying to God. I think there's a lot of lessons about evangelism there. And I do see, like we, we sort of talk about imbibing certain tendencies of our culture that aren't really consonant with Catholicism. And I think one of them is this sort of like nervousness or rejection of culture qua culture. What I mean by that is like we come into contact with something and there's elements of it that feel foreign to our faith. Uh, You've seen this sometimes in missionary endeavors, both Protestant and Catholic, where they arrive and they say like, well, to accept Jesus as Lord, it means like discarding this facet of your culture but I think the most creative forms of forms of evangelism and the longest lasting really took root within what was already existing. There was like, there was this kind of soil and then the seed of the truths of the gospel were added to that and something sprouted up in our own time. That is challenging. Like we look out in the world and we turn on our televisions or we look at our smartphone and we see a lot of things. We're like, Oh man, this feels like threatening to my family or to our faith community. But I think when, when the next great awakening comes, 
it will probably be because someone is really creative about like what's existing there in the first place. No, I think this is really good. First of all, if any of your celebrations of any Christian feast involve a tomato, uh, the new world and, and, and turning your cultural cuisine upside down uh, didn't exist until the new world tomato. Just pointing that okay. out. They didn't have those in Europe. I think about this with uh, Blessed Stanley Rother, uh, missionary down in Guatemala, the Zutu Hill people. So to one of these elements, but during right around the spring solstice, they would go up on the mountain that they considered holy and they would face the sun rising in the east and they would do ceremonies for it. When the missionaries came, and then when they then subsequently left, when they came back, lo and behold, what did they do every Easter? So they did Mass, but, they, but before they went to Mass, they went up to that mountain and they go, all along, we were, you know, they don't call it the proto-evangelization, but that's the technical term, right? They're like, all along, we were waiting to celebrate the rising of the Son of God on Easter. That's what this meant, right? So that's that sort of fermentation and I think that's the, I mean, but think about how much our Christian culture is essentially, what a great metaphor fermentation is for it. What, you know, a seed, unless it dies and goes in the ground, won't be raised to a new fruit. Fermentation is making living things out of dead things. Mm-hmm. You take the dead grain of the alcohol, you, you know, like with pickles, like sourdough, we can keep going into all of these things. But I do think it's very telling that a lot of Christian culture has fermentation as part of its physical process and product uh, because that's one way if you go, well, what? why did Jesus have to come and die? And you go, it's something like fermentation to take death and defeat death with death and bring life out of it. Um, and here in the winter months, right, as we're waiting, if you think about the cheesemakers or people who have their beer in their, in their casks, that quiet work of fermentation is going on right now. Yeah, as you're talking, I just I have this this idea that, that I'm thinking about where it's it's interesting in scripture that a lot of the a lot of like the falls, so to speak, are the ways that people trip up. I mean, there are there are scandalous sins like famously like David with Bathsheba and then he murders her husband. But a lot of times it's sort of like this lack of trust in God mm-hmm. and not going forward when God calls you in a new thing. And that's that's really tough. I know that from my own life. It's it's easy to say on the radio tough to live out in practice, but you think about like lot wanting to stay in Sodom or, you know, they're going to, um, the promised land. And there are those who say like, they're as big as grasshoppers. Yeah. They're as big as grasshoppers on down the line. Obviously we're grasshoppers, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I forget which one it is. (laughs) They're ready to stomp on us, the grasshoppers, Yes, 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 yes. you know, and then of course, like preeminently when Jesus starts his public ministry, there are those who are around him who think that he's playing too fast and loose, or he's like discarding the old. Even after the apostles experienced the resurrection, you have this whole debate about circumcision or table fellowship with Jews and Gentiles at the same time. And so that's, I don't know. I'm not sure how to like tease that out on the show today in terms of our own lives, but this sort of like clinging to the past and not being ready to step into what the new thing that God's doing. Well, I think it's interesting to not only say, so there's one way to think that new things are just accretions on top of old ones. So there's the old thing, and then you either have to clear it or you're going to have to build on top of it. But both of those missed the point. Again, fermentation is a really great way to think about this because there will be some people who are like, I only like milk. And you're like, milk's fine. <laughs> only milk. And then you go, okay, but if you introduce a live culture to it, 
there's idiots who'd be like, all right, well, now here's the new thing. You're like, no, 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 don't eat it yet. That's disgusting. Yeah. And you go, I wish we just had milk. This smells bad. It's gross. And you go, just wait a bit. And if you wait long enough, boom, cheddar, Gouda. I just start the whole last part of the show. I'm just naming cheeses. But that, <laughs> For like 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the same thing with like alcohol, right? People are like, but I like grain. Yeah. You're like, trust me. And they're like, do we drink it now? You're like, no, that would be disgusting. Trust me. You wait long enough, boom. It is a sort of fermentation. So think about how in fermenta- fermentation, the new product is truly new, but it has not discarded the old. Mm-hmm. But it is in a form that you couldn't have imagined. Uh, so you don't have to throw away the old. You don't have to be Marcionite. You don't have to like kick out um, what was uh, Jewishness, what was Hebrewness beforehand in the Old Testament. But neither do you have to think that like the the you know Christian reality is just stuff stacked on top of what came before. Yeah. And I'd also throw out, of course, that sort of by the time the prophets were around, that was already a sort of fermented reality of what the Jewish people were living, even compared to the time of the patriarchs, for instance, or even yeah. you know, David. And so that sort of idea of newness, I think, is what we're talking about. A newness that is ever ancient, ever new. It comes from the reality of the old. It doesn't have to just push it away. It doesn't have to hit the reset button. But if you don't, like, I, I love your point. If you're not patient enough, it will look like a disaster. <laughs> It will look like the thing that we were given mm. is completely ruined. And this is what we mean by you have to take up your cross and follow me. And you think about, that's why he says you have to be leavened to the world, yeah. right? You, you have to be able to make and see through the process of the fermentation, the grain becoming something else. This is the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> Back with the Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, joining you this week, this new year, 2024. Welcome to the show. Still doing jokes for the New Year's, folks. We've been talking about new beginnings, but I think this year, what's really stuck out to us, Bud, is the sort of paradoxical nature of new beginnings where you're not just casting out old things completely, yeah. uh, but you're bringing to fore the old in a new way. We talked last segment, brought up the idea of fermentation and how that newness does not discard the old, but comes from it, even if it's through a process of difficulty uh, or even death and rebirth. But I think you've talked about this with me before. There's this idea that in some ways this complicates everything. Yeah. Like why couldn't it just be easy, old or new, Right. So you had some insights, I think, that were are brilliant to consider here at the new year about why God and his wisdom might allow new and old, ever ancient, ever new to dwell together uh, in the life of a Christian. Yeah, some theologians have said that Catholicism is the religion of the both and. And what they mean by that is that our faith really upholds sometimes these ideas or even ways of life that seem to be intention. So you think sort of famously like faith and works. There are ways that people have read the Bible and seen those two things at odds. Catholics bring them together. Uh, Something like divine providence and human freedom, the great majesty of Shark Cathedral and the apostolic simplicity of St. Francis. You could go on down the line. And I I was talking about this with Rachel after Mass on Sunday, actually, and I'll preface this by saying, honey, I don't just like 
use our conversations for ideas about the show. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. But there's a way in which it seems like it'd be easier if God was just like, everybody be like St. Francis. But Catholicism has this whole argument or conversation about like, well, if you're a father, that looks differently. Or they're even great like magistrates or people have been blessed with great wealth who then use that in ways that I think we're glorifying to God. And this way as well, when we think about new beginnings and you think about tradition and how we handle tradition, again, there would be something simple about saying like, well, when you come into the faith, you just leave everything behind. Stop talking to your family members. Stop going to marketplace. Stop, you know, everything. That's that's not the case. And I don't want to, you know, I'm a little reticent. I don't want to give the picture like Catholicism is this great puzzle you have to figure out or something. <laughs> but to me, it's like, it's what's adventurous. It's like a puzzle. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> it's like, it's what's adventurous about the faith, but I think also very challenging. So you think about when Christ comes on the scene and he preaches this gospel, which is good news. It would have been maybe straightforward or easier to handle if he said, you know, like, well, what I'm telling you is something completely new, but the language of the new Testament is operating completely with the framework of the old. It's just in this new key because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So you think about these great images from the new Testament where the day has come where God has written the law on human hearts so it's, it's not checking out the law, but there's this way in which it's been internalized in a new manner. Or you think about something like circumcision, like St. Paul does say that if a Gentile comes into the family of God, that person doesn't have to be circumcised, but there's still this circumcision of the heart. So we're constantly wrestling with those things. You know, there's a, a few directions we could go in the conversation now, but that's really the task for us in each generation. We've been handed this treasure, but we're not really faithful to the gift that's been given to us if it's like, well, I'm just going to copy down Thomas by rote mm-hmm. and just hand that to my children. There's new challenges. There's a new framework. There's conversations that the world is having that St. Thomas or whoever, you know, St. Augustine didn't know about. And so each generation is called to pick up that torch and to handle it creatively and in fidelity in their own time and place. So, Bud, you know, if you say, this reminds me of something someone said, I'm going to say, this is going to be John Henry Newman, and 90% of the time I'll be right. So who do you think this reminds me of? Newman? No. Oh, what? Marshall Robert? McLuhan. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I go to Newman. You go to, yeah. yeah so McLuhan has this point that I just thought of on air, and I'm glad that you... So I, I can't go into the whole theory, but he makes this point that content in a different context, what he says in terms of gestalt psychology, that figure like a a figure, a sign, a word, if the ground shifts, if the context changes, the same figure, the same content can be read differently. And I just realized that when the Bible talks about writing the law on the heart, the content doesn't change, the form it's in does. And so this is revolutionary, right? So to say that the law is exterior to us, written on tablets, standing over us, it can say the same thing, right? Right. It can say, you you know, you should have no other gods before me. But it being on the form of an exterior tablet versus being written on your fleshly heart, I realize, right, is a ground change. And that's why it can transform without changing, right? So you don't throw it out. It, let me, it changes, but it's not done away with. Because you can take the same figure and content, change the ground or the context it's in, and it will be new, but still the old thing. And I realize that that's what we're trying to get at. Um, that's one thing from Marshall McLuhan that we're trying to get at is that this is the way old things become new without being jettisoned. 
yeah. is by this ground shift, by the context being different. But another thing Newman, uh, excuse me, I was talking <laughs> McLuhan brings up quite a bit is he talks about how there has to be a resonant interval between complementary but things that look like they're disparate. This is me reading a lot into him, but I realize that the both and is not just like, oh, well, what we're going to do is just switch rapidly between the two. Think about it in terms of marriage, actually. The complementarity of the husband and wife, it's not some sort of draconian black and white thing where these two should never meet. What do we say about a married couple? That they should be one flesh, but they're not the same. They're complementary. And what it is is femininity and masculinity, and I know those are very contentious terms, but I'm talking about it mostly in general. The way that that works, the way that we say that they become one flesh is that there's a resonance between that interval, that their difference is what allows them to be unified. They're not mixed or confused. And this is, I'm stealing this from uh, uh, Etienne Ejelson, who says this, if there's things that are distinct, they can be unified. But if they're just mixed, they'll be confused. Yeah. And I realize that that's sort of at the heart of this both and, and there's so many both ands. <laughs> but that's what it is, right? Faith and reason are distinct. To just flatten them into one thing or to act like and deal with them as if they're the same is to miss why it is that God wants there to be both faith and reason. But this resonant interval where they resonate together to make like a musical chord, that's what we're after. And bud, the old and the new, that's what we've been called uh, to do in the Christian life. Like we think about that in the Testaments, we think about that in the prophecies, but for so much, even in our life now, how do we take who we were and what we were and not just, like you said, demolish it or throw it away, but make the new resonate with it? It's important that the type of sinner that Paul was navigates, not controls, but plays into the type of saint he became. Yeah. And we just got this with Augustine in spades, right? Mm. Augustine doesn't throw away who he was. He writes an entire book about all of his sinning, but he doesn't just stack on top of his sins. There's a resonance between old Augustine and new Augustine, and that resonant interval is what allows him to be the one flesh of the new, you know, the grace that pours into his heart. And I think that's what we're getting at talking about, and hopefully that you see in your own life out there, listener, in the new year. This is really good. And I, with this next thing I'm about to say, I'm not going to pretend like I do it really well, but I think there's always the temptation when a new thing arises, even those who want to use it well, I'm not saying this very clearly. So they take, they take what's old, mm -hmm. say for instance, like the catechism or the mass. And then this new technology arises like television. And they say, we'll just take the old and we'll put it on the new. Yep. yep. And so you, you, you take the old and it's like, well, we'll just televise the mass and that will reach the masses. Not pun, no pun intended. <laughs> mass and masses. But like really, so this next example is not a Catholic saint, but I think a telling example and someone who we could learn a great deal from, you think about someone like Fred Rogers. Mm -hmm. And so you have the television technology and all sorts of folks are just saying like, well, we'll take information and we'll channel it through television and it will seep into kids' heads and we can educate them by using the television. Fred Rogers comes along and there's all these stereotypes about what you could and could not do on television. He said, look, I'm going to have moments of silence. I'm going to go at a slower pace. I'm going to bring kids on the show who I'll interact with impromptu, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. And he kind of revolutionized the medium, I think part of it is he had this kind of incarnational approach to it. And what I mean by that is he really seemed to try to understand how the television had changed viewers. And so he knew in a way that a lot of other television execs or personalities didn't look the invention, of the atom bomb 
this is really playing on kids' psyches. And he does these kind of revolutionary shows where it's like, I know you're afraid. I'm there with you and I'm entering into the medium. Mm-hmm. That's we were talking in the break with, with Jesus and the Pharisees and this contention that sometimes existed there, the arguments that he had with them. They're both operating with the same content, but Christ says to some of them, like you've missed the boat because you're not, you're not recognizing the new context or you're applying it in ways that are actually like harmful or unhelpful. Dude, this is so great. And I know this is unfair because you and I got to go in the same program and be at like the Fred Rogers museum. You should all know this, right? This is, it's at St. Vincent's university, which is the arch Abbey. So Fred Rogers and Catholicism, a very interesting, that's a whole discussion later, but to your point, the craziest thing, this is another Marshall McLuhanism. Fred Rogers, you said revolutionized. Perfect word, bud. His show was so new precisely because it retrieved mm-hmm. so much from before television. So it's funny that the newness of television, which mostly was created by just dumping the old ways of learning onto television, created a sort of new staleness. I know that's, I mean, like now I'm being poetic. But television was, for children especially, was stale. It was weird, Bozo the Clown stuff. <laughs> and Fred Rogers was like, you know what? I'm not going to go back even to text. I'm going to go back before that and retrieve something about the oral storytelling tradition, which, like you said, took in mind the audience. And it's weird because, I mean, I can't, we can't prove that. We'd have to go look this up. There's a way in which, which Mr. Rogers probably made all of television care about audiences in a way no one did because a lot of stuff was just shove it in their face. Who are they to care? You know, and he goes, my audience is different. He did psych, you know, he, he learned psychology about children and said, I'm going to do old things a new way on television. Like you said, revolutionized all of it. I think that's exactly right. When we think about that resonant interval, sometimes the newest thing you can do is an old thing. And the most stale thing you can do is keep along the trend line of what is quote-unquote new. And I think that that's one more reason why we have a lot of hope, bud, that there are embers right below the surface of our culture, like we said in the first segment, waiting to be reignited if we would just be willing to retrieve the old new thing. Well, you've got to be careful because if you cling too fast to the old, you might miss the new thing that God's doing. And Okay, I'll pick on a little bit like the circles that I run in. So if you attend the traditional Latin mass or the older form of the liturgy, you'll find this kind of sometimes instinctive sort of um, concern or uh, like rejection of some new technology. So you think about digital technologies and the smartphone. I don't want to pretend that the new phones like they're this unmitigated good, but there are a lot of conservative conservative Christians or mass goers who are like, I don't know, like, this is the world entering too much into my household. And we all need to find ways to navigate that, of course, prudently. But it's funny. I mentioned the traditional Latin mass. If you stopped and you had a conversation at coffee hour and said, well, you know, like the 80 people that we've added this year, you know how they found the traditional Latin mass? Probably through their smartphone. Like it's oh, been a- <laughs> Yeah. I mean, let's talk about this, bud. When did you, what, what year, bud, did you find out about the traditional Latin Yeah, 2007. Mass? And what big device was released the same year? The iPhone. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a way in which there's nothing more digital than the Latin Mass. Yeah. And so that, that's your, and I understand why people are confused about this, yeah. right? Because it seems like, oh, I went and dug up and found an old thing. And you did, but weirdly in a new way, 
And Christianity does this throughout its whole history, where, you know, think about how many times people found Aristotle, people had largely dismissed Aristotle, and then here was this old guy in a new translation interacting with Islamic people, yeah. and all of a sudden, it's, you could hear Aristotle again for the first time, this very ancient thing being new, and a lot of people, bud, who were against Aristotle, argued out two sides of their mouth. These new ideas, and oh, that's an old pagan. And Thomas goes, I don't know, let's consider what he has to say and, and test the spirits against the faith. Yeah, so we have to have the modality or the way of being that Fred Rogers did, where we, we take the risk of sort of entering into the world of young people and saying, like, what is this new phenomenon? What's, what's uh, at the root of it? And so with, with the smartphone, with the use of digital technology, it has these great archival powers and you see a lot of kids like in their teens or twenties who are looking for an authentic experience, like going deeper than the shallow culture that they've experienced to look at, you know, the history of cathedrals or the history of the liturgy, whatever it happens to be. Of course it spills out beyond Christianity and that's, that's a real opportunity for the faith. And so if we have that spirit simply of rejection, we're probably not going to be able to have those conversations. And when you mention Thomas and his like use of Aristotle and, and Averroes, you know, great Muslim thinker. Even today, like in academic circles, you find people who have this great love for Thomas and a question will come up and they're like, well, Thomas would be whatever happens to be like a post evolutionary theory. You know, I don't know how they necessarily like reach that conclusion, but they just like you sort of like treat the summa as a, as a catechism with like these clear cut responses, a new question arises and then you kind of use it as a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. But just as like, I couldn't be newsflash, Michael Jordan, <laughs> like I'm just going to be, a, huh? oh. I'm going to be a second Jordan. But in my younger years, when I had more athletic ability, I could say like, I want to learn and, and learn from and imitate him. Yeah. Like with St. Thomas Aquinas, I think we're more faithful to his witness by saying, how can we have the same sort of mode in our time and place that he had in his, it's not repeating his answers, but like having that kind of like wrestling with the current philosophies and conversations of the day. And I think on the flip side, so the, the, the alternate temptation, so we'll do the mass and then we'll talk about figures. Uh, any idea that just, we have to do, we have to keep moving on, right? That there's this straight line called progress. And if you're not on this train, that you're just holding things back, forgets that this aspect of retrieval is some of the way in which the newest things that occur do occur. And just because the kids all of a sudden like something old, liturgically maybe, it's not a matter of them, you know, wishing that like the world would never change. It's actually like T.S. Eliot says in, in the poem, I think it's Four Quartets, to arrive at your home again for the first time. Like a lot of times that's what's going on is to, to understand, to like look back into the past, which again, that's what the people in the 60s that like the, the council fathers in Vatican II, they had been reading Eastern sources that used to be a wellspring for all sorts of Westerners. And it was like they read it again for the first time. This is a dynamic that itself is old. It occurs and to push against it's silly and to act like um, that progress only goes one direction and along a sort of like very obvious line seems to miss the point. And again, this goes into on the flip side when we think about engaging um, modern intellectual thoughts. One of the most silly, like, you will be old the minute you do it, <laughs> is to jump on a trend in academia and try to make Christianity seem cool according to the trend. People do this 
all the time with science. It looks ridiculous within like a month, but particularly after five years. But I, you know, do you ever go back and like look at some of the controversies when you and I were in grad school? And it's pretty cringy. Yeah. Like what people thought they needed to do to be relevant. On the other hand, there's certainly the way that we can do like Thomas and find even things that seem oppositional, like pagans, to our faith and to test them with the spirits and be willing, like you said, to hold that resonant interval together. I think a good way to like end this, bud, is so we each had a Bible verse that yeah. brought this up. So what was the one that you were talking about? Yeah, I just closed my app on the phone, but it was what Jesus says, like any, how's he put it? Like householder or he's talking about those, the, the scholars of the kingdom of heaven, they bring out of their storehouse things, both old and new. And so there's both elements there, the old and the new brought together in this creative way. And the one that I have is from John. No. Yes. Yes. Luke. <laughs> so Luke, I knew he was a gospel writer. And the idea is he goes, look, you know, this generation reminds me of people who are in a marketplace and the children say, look, we sang a dirge and you, you didn't, you know, uh, mourn with us. And then we were happy and you, you didn't uh, deal with us either. This generation uh, is like, they saw John the Baptist and they said he was mad. They saw the son of man walking with his apostles and said he was a drunkard. So like, you know, it's like this idea of like, everybody can find a reason to poo poo everything. But the main line is, but wisdom is vindicated in all of her children. So there is a time to be like John the Baptist there is a time to celebrate with the bridegroom. There is a time for the old. There is a time for the new. The resonant interval that holds the both hand, that's sort of the, 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 the very essence and heart of what Jesus does in his incarnation, right? Again, divinity and humanity, one person, right? The hypostatic union, uh, life and death, life through death. And we, in our, more, you know, we're supposed to live in time and eternity. That can sound like mumbo-jumbo, except we have the lived example of Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping that's what people can take away from this new, newest, new beginning, to not discard completely the old, but see it transfigured in the life of this new year. This is the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner, Dr. Mudmar, stick around. We'll be back right after this. with the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, joining you this week and joining you in the new year. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for listening all these years and we're looking forward uh, to the year 2024. Whether you listen on iowacatholicradio.com and our ever-expanding radio waves with the radio towers and whatnot, whether that's on iowacatholicradio.com uh, on the internet, uh, the Iowa Catholic Radio app, and of course all of our good podcast listeners, thank you for listening to the show. Bud, a wonderful way to start out the new year. Yeah. I feel uh, invigorated. I'll call that our champagne show. Ever since we've made it to the 2020s, the world just feels really old to me. You know the old <laughs> Conan O'Brien skit? Like in, in the, the year 2000. Yeah. 2024. We're living in the future. It's crazy because like it showed <laughs> you the, 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 the zeitgeist of uh, everyone our age. Yeah. I've been showing that to my kids <laughs> and talking about it. It's like, like well, something about the future. The future, bud? Yeah, that's right, Bo Bonner. Uh, let's go to the future, all the way to the year 2000. And then they kept doing the bit after the year 2000. At any rate, I thought it was great. That was the best part. I think my kids are sort of laughing for me. Not at me, probably not with me, but for me. Yeah, speaking of youth, I think the younger generation, like they did not inherit our sort of like optimism that the future was just going to be amazing. <laughs> 
they've got a real opportunity to suffer for the kingdom. There no, I mean, hopefully many blessings and great things in 2024. During this next year, if you'd like to join us in our prayer life, please do so. We pray the rosary on air at 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., then the Chapel of Divine Mercy at 2.55 in the afternoon. You can all also use the Iowa Catholic Radio app not only to keep up with events, but to pray the rosary anytime, anywhere. By the way, you've always said that you thought I was good at making transitions. I loved that one. That was a decent one. You're like, ah, everything's bad, but... I was looking over at you like, he's, he's proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> Not in 2024. Uh, in 2024, you can go to iowacatholicradio.com and look at events that are occurring in the Diocese of Des Moines or in many places in the Iowa Catholic Radio listener area. Realm. I'm going to go with Realm. <laughs> Uh, we do have, for instance, January 12th uh, in West Des Moines at noon, St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church, the Man Up Power Lunch, Ryland Jones, who currently, currently works with the Utfidum program at Dowling Catholic High School, will be there. Lunch provided by Chick-fil-A or Bring Your Own. You can register by emailing contact at kwky.com. I don't think that has to do with aliens, but just <laughs> the contact there at the show. Uh, January 18th at 7 p.m., at the Ironside Axe Club, ooh, Whoa. Forge Presents with Pete Boric. Uh, come to Ironside Axe Club on January 18th. I'm clearly learning about this as I read. For unlimited axe throwing and national renowned speaker, Pete Boric, Vice President of Renewal Ministries, the father of five. Pete speaks around the country on the Holy Spirit discipleship and obviously axe throwing. <laughs> See, I know my strengths and weaknesses, and as a very clumsy person, I think I'm going to avoid that ministry event. I <laughs> I encourage others to make it, but... Like, if you have, like, the pitching screen, maybe? I'm sure they've got safety measures, but I'll still find a way to yeah. lop off an appendage. I understand. <laughs> then April 12th in Altoona at St. John's and Paul Catholic Church, Peter Herbeck, uh, join us there with Faith Fellowship, uh, come alive at 6 p.m. Again, all of this, you can go look at iowacatholicradio.com uh, to find out other events. As always, uh, we just want to point out that this ministry belongs to you. It belongs to all of us together. It's not just the folks you hear on the radio, the people behind the boards, or the people behind the desks. This is your ministry as well. Thank you for supporting us in 2023. A great time uh, to get started supporting us in 2024. iowacatholicradio.com or 515-223-1150 to call or text to donate. Please keep us in mind. Uh, we're grateful for your prayers and your volunteering, but we're also grateful for your gifts that make this great ministry possible. Bud, love how we've gotten uh, off to a good start in the new year. I can feel the energy of it. I'm glad. I uh, hope you had a wonderful Christmas break and are looking forward to getting things rolling in this new year. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year, everyone. This is the Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, family, city, state, nation, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is the Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and The Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu.